All right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Shane White Show. I am pumped today to have a repeat guest, Kiva Dickinson, on the pod. Kiva, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. I uh, I, I re- originally reached out because I've just been wanting to chat with folks in your shoes, to be honest. like On my side, working with a lot of CPG brands, specifically in the e-commerce space, um, with just the environment of the economy, fundraising... I was like, it'd be great to have Kiva back on the podcast just to get a fresh view of how things are going and see what it looks like from his view. Um, and we'll dive into this, but then you just dropped some big news while we were emailing back and forth trying to find a time. So we'll dive into that. But just wanted to say, first and foremost, congrats on closing fund number two. Um, and for everyone not listening who maybe didn't listen to the first episode, would you mind giving everyone just a quick background of, of who you are and Selva Ventures? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, Selva Ventures is a four-year-old venture capital firm that I founded back in 2019 uh, with the mission of investing in brands that give their consumers better lives. So to us, that means um, helping making healthier living more fun, engaging, accessible. Uh, it means consumer products that have better ingredients, better function, and better emotional connection with the consumer. And specifically for us, uh, it means supporting these brands at the early stage, meaning seed and series A before they have broken out, but after they have a little bit of traction to show that they're onto something. Uh, I had been started my career in uh, investment banking and then uh, basically buyout private equity uh, mm-hmm. was really, really passionate about brands and healthy living and was really intrigued by the idea of working with earlier stage companies, something that didn't really get much of the chance to do working at this firm TPG. Uh, and so eventually made my way to a company that was kind of one of the OGs in, in the world of emerging CPG, a company called Circle Up, and uh, got to help them launch their first ever growth fund. Uh, spent two years there, worked closely with NutPods and Liquid IV, a couple mm-hmm. of the investments there that had gone quite well. Um, before ultimately finding this inspiration to to launch what is now Selva Ventures, and so been at this now for for four years. Got a teammate in, in Madeline that joined the team about a year and a half ago, uh, and as you said, just closed our second fund, which is a thirty four million dollar fund that we'll be deploying over the next few years. Fantastic, super exciting, and uh, for everyone, I'm sure one question: if this is your first time listening to Kiva, Kiva, how? How did you go from zero to one of working with Circle Up and then starting your own firm? Like, I feel like in this space specifically, there seems like there has to be so many regulations and rules and things you'd have to do to go just out. And it's not like anyone can necessarily just like start a, a fund and, and, and do what you've done. So what were some of the first steps? I mean, obviously you were deep into that world. So you probably, you already knew a lot about it. You knew what you needed, but would love for people listening who have any interest in this to understand like what that zero to one looked like for you. Yeah, I guess I would first say that um, starting an investment firm is probably a lot more like starting a business than investing day to day while working at an investment firm. It's, you know, a solid chunk of my time and, you know, my personal identity and what keeps me up at night is being an entrepreneur, not an investor. And that really over-indexed in the first year of the business. So I think the first thing is just like any entrepreneur, you have an idea. Mm-hmm. And in order to uh, in order to kind of make that idea actionable, you build a business plan and you figure out how much money you would need to support that idea. 
when you're investing a fund, I mean, you can, you can write angel investments, but effectively there, there's no bootstrapping. You're, you're going to need to go find a pool of capital that you can invest over a period of time. And so for me, uh, there was a, there was a guy that I had gotten to know, uh, back at my time working at TPG, a, a, a guy named David Littman, who runs a lighting business in, in New York that has been extremely mm. successful. Uh, we got to know each other over the course of about three or four years, such that when I had this idea, I went to him and said, you know, Hey David, we, we've always thought about working together in some way. And I'm seeing this hole in the market of emerging consumer brands that are looking to um, build something different, do so uh, more quickly than you usually would with uh, a consumer brand. You know, historically, consumer brands took a really long time to get off the ground and scale. We wanted to provide capital and resources to, to really um, to shorten that outcome and make breakout success more possible more quickly. Um, and David was really the first domino. He introduced me uh, to a guy named Kerry, who had uh, been the first investor in one bar and had done really successfully mm. with that, who introduced me to a guy named John Bitov, who was the original founder of the Toronto Raptors and a, and a, um, a real kind of serial Canadian entrepreneur who had a Toronto connection with me. Toronto is my hometown. Um, oh, I didn't know and that. the three okay. of them eventually became the kind of the, the seed investors that got me going. And so, you know, from there, we were able to create some of the early proof that over time attracted more capital, attracted, you know, some of the first companies that took a chance on partnering with us and eventually, um, you know, allowed us to, to scale up to raising the second fund. Wow. That's really, really exciting. It also goes to show just the power of networking connections, like you launching this didn't start when you had the idea. It started well before that as you were working with other folks and, and building your network. Yeah, I, I would say like lesson, not just to investors, but any, any business professional, anyone who may ever want to start a company one day, um, when you have that special idea that just like burns that hole in your gut and makes you want to take the plunge, the, per the people that can make that possible are the relationships that you invested in a long time ago, not the ones that you're just meeting today. In fact, uh, if, you're, if you're looking to meet somebody today and you already need something from them, odds are it's not going to happen. It's going to be the people that you really spent time with and built trust with for years who, you know, are, are in your corner and, and ready to hit go with you when you find that idea and have that conviction that you want to launch into the world. That makes a ton of sense. And I, I totally agree. And, and so when you, when you got this off the ground, I'm assuming part of the very beginning, I think we hit on this a little bit in the first episode as I was listening back, but how much time and energy had to go into I'm assuming like selling your concept or selling what someone who's going to put money into your first fund, what the goal end goal is, what they're going to get out of it. Um, how much time and energy do you think you spent when you got this off the ground, just meeting people, pitching potential? And I'm not sure. What do you, what do you call folks that put money into your fund? Are they, what's, what's their limited like, partners? LP. Yeah, an LP. Okay. That's what I thought. So these LPs, like how much was that basically like your full time? Do you have any companies that you already wanted to, because I think we talked about this a little bit. It's like, it's kind of a chicken or the egg. Like you need the folks to put in, you need the LPs to put money in, but then you need to also be have, I would assume like a concept or an idea of the companies that those LPs might end up seeing their money get deployed to. Yeah. I mean, there, there are, there are funds out there that are 
single asset where you come to an LP and say, hey, I have this deal that I want to do, and I'd like you to be a part of funding it. And in that situation, the LP really evaluates that deal. I mean, they certainly evaluate you and, and try to decide whether whether you're going to you know screw it up and you know whether, whether you're going to make the right judgment calls along the way. But uh, they're evaluating the deal. It's very different when, when you're raising what we refer to as a blind pool, mm-hmm. which is uh, an amount of money that you're going to go out and deploy into new ideas. So what they want to hear is they want to hear about your track record. Basically, what have you done in the past and, and why is that relevant to what you're going to be doing in the future? How good a job did you do? What was your performance like in the past? And then they're going to want to know some examples of what you might invest in, knowing mm. that those might not be the things that you would invest in, but it at least make it a bit more tangible than to say, you know, we're, we're going to go out and invest in this many, this many companies over, over some period of time. Um, the final thing they're really going to want to understand is your process. Basically to say, like, when you find an idea, what do you do to evaluate it? And how does an idea ultimately work through a funnel? Um, you know, venture capital is it's a sales funnel at the end of the day. Like you're, you're qualifying a ton of leads. You're mm-hmm. cutting them off over time. And you're ultimately finding the few that you want to invest time and resources in and ultimately pull the trigger on. Um, and so they want to know what the different steps of the sales funnel are and how you think about knocking a company out of that funnel on the way to ultimately transact. Wow. Oh, that's really, really interesting. Is there anything not to give away your secret sauce by any means, but like what, what are some of the key things that would kick a a brand out of the funnel for you guys today? Yeah. I mean, in in general, we've, there's no secret sauce. Like we've, we've written a lot about how we evaluate companies. We kind of feel like it, it's, it's more helpful to share with the world what we're looking for than it is to, to keep it all cooped up because love that. I find when, when you, when you share your ideas of what you're looking for, that those targets have a way of finding you. Sure. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we early on, were really conscious of the fact that there had to be objectivity and some degree of quantification of what is a really subjective task of evaluating these brands. And so, uh, my partners and I tried to come up with what would be somewhat of a, um, almost like a scorecard where, effectively, we would look at the previous companies that we would have wanted to invest in and almost flow them through our current investment process and see how they would get scored. Mm, okay. I mean, you came from our bar, So it's a great example. Like you want your investment process to find the next bar. And if you do find the next RX bar, you want it to say yes. In fact, you want it to say like, heck yes. Like let's, let's, let's pay let's a high price. This. For yeah. This. yeah. And so, uh, we basically came up with a method that we called the five M's that would, you know, tweak score, quantify, and ultimately put out uh, a score that would reflect our level of conviction that we should then pursue. And oh, so, okay. uh, the things that made us really excited would be uh, really like a macro mega trend in consumer behavior, such as you know consumers looking to consume less sugar. Um, we would look for a problem that a company is solving for the consumer, because we feel that you know cool products are great, but it's products that solve problems for consumers that make consumers talk about that product with other people in their life, make Definitely. them come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted a strong management team and a differentiated product. 
We wanted momentum and capital efficiency, and we wanted a market that was big enough to matter. So all of those things together would ultimately output a score. You know, often we would find, you know, everything would line up, but the momentum wasn't quite there or uh, the momentum was there, but it wasn't happening efficiently. And now, especially we're, we're dialing up the importance of efficiency, repeat purchase, gross margin, how little a company has raised to get where they are today. Uh, because as the world becomes more capital constrained, and in general, you're an early investor who's subject to future dilution, uh, you want a company who does not need to keep raising money in order to achieve its success. Wow, that's a great overview and a, and a lot to dive into there. That's awesome, Kiva. Um, I think the one of the big questions out of that that was one of the reasons I wanted to get you back on here was it seems like over the last 12 months, you know, a lot of brands that I interact with and talk with, this whole concept of top line growth by all means has now pivoted to being a much more bottom line focused, I would say just overarching macro direction that a lot of brands are going into. Still obviously focused on growth, but at a profitable clip if possible. And you kind of hit on that, just like some of the pieces that you guys evaluate, it kind of ticks and ties that. Um, is that pivoted at all what kind of brands you look at especially if there's brands that you look at that maybe the repeat purchase rate is there the the, the point of differentiation and them actually solving a problem is there but they're losing cat they're losing money or their cash burn is is too heavy are there things that you guys look at and you're like hey we think we could actually come in and, and put some resources around this at least from a an advisory role or however it works to help clean this up or is it kind of like if you guys don't have that part figured out and you're burning too much cash at this point in time. Like that's, is that one of the big things that kicks brands out for you guys? It is. I mean, I, th I think we should start with why this shift is happening towards profitability. Yeah. Definitely. You know, interest rates, interest rates have gone up, which has meant that, uh, an investor taking high risk on long-term growth is less attractive when they can earn 5% risk free or, you know, 10 to 12% for, for relatively low risk. Right. And so right. it just raises the bar on how big an outcome you need if you're going to have no cash flow along the way. Yeah. And that has, that has turned non cash flowing businesses out of favor across all markets, not just early stage consumer brands. I think the second thing that has come to play is. Uh, capital over the past few years in the world of emerging consumer has been shaken up. And in most cases, there's just less to go around for brands. And so early investors are relatively fearful about funding a company that needs to go back to the capital markets in the next one to two years. And so that means that, you know, profitability in the past would not have been as important in the next two years because you just trust that if you hit the right KPIs and grow an attractive amount, there will be a next investor who will fund the business. Mm -hmm. Now you have to believe that, you know, in, in two years, if that company's out of money, like you're going to do it. And that's a, that's a scarier proposition for investors. So where we have liked to get involved now relative to the past is Obviously, companies with KPIs that show it's working, gross margin that is high enough to be efficient and one day acquirable, repeat purchase to show that consumers actually like it. And, yeah. you know, those things 
combined with, hey, if we invest in this company today, they're not going to need to raise capital in the next 18 to 24 months. They'll control their destiny. They might want to raise capital, but they won't need to raise capital. Yeah. And I think we're we're really not alone in that. That has become the the sort of norm that early stage consumer investors have uh, begun to fil filter through their companies with. And I think that I mean it makes a lot of sense. I, I know for me, and maybe just because of my background at RX Bar, I was always confused when I'd see some of these brands that are just burning cash, raising all kinds of money. And I always thought that I'm like, aren't, like we're, you're not really solving the long term problem here, right? It's like you don't have a super profitable business. You're banking on a major CPG player to purchase you. And then their, their internal system basically cleans up your bottom line, which I think it's a tough, that's a tough proposition for an investor to like hope that that outcome comes. Cause right. Like, especially, I mean, you would know way more than me. I feel like I try to stay as close as I can to it, but man, if you look over the last five years, the amount of major transactions that's happened in especially food and beverage is just like falling off a cliff, right? Like when you look at actual acquisitions that have taken place, I mean, like, like the 2016 to 2019 timeframe, those, it feels like those days are maybe not gone, but they're just on pause is the best way I describe it. Because we just, I don't see very many would, of them right now. I wouldn't now. say pause. I'd say there, there are fewer. Sure. And there are a lot more brands out there. So as a, as a percentage of brands out there, there are, there's definitely a lower percent that, that ultimately make it to an outcome like that. But, you know, our, our X bar is, is among the gold standards of efficiency. They never yeah, needed to raise sure. outside capital. Uh, and you know, that Peter is a, is a close friend. And I think that like factors into every new business that he looks at. Yeah, um, sure. I think the thing to keep in mind in this question of, of profitability for, for CPG brands, and this is something that I've been trying to write about a little bit lately and full disclosure, I'm a venture capitalist. So, uh, it's, it's like inherent in my business that I want these companies to raise money at the beginning. Sure. Um, yeah, it makes sense. I think it does make sense for a CPG brand to raise capital before they're at $10 million in sales. Okay. The largest reason why is that there are one-time startup costs and there are uh, people costs where you want to invest in not being a completely scrappy, you know, absolutely resource-free business when you could have access to great talent and great industry partners. Mm. That being said, there are a lot of companies that have made the norm to burn cash and investors haven't done the greatest job evaluating why a company is burning cash. Meaning if that you're burning sense. cash because you have a team filled with extremely talented people at $5 million in sales, and you're not actually going to need to grow that team very much to get to $25 million in sales. That's a good investment. That's a good reason to burn cash today. But if you're burning cash because your gross margin is like 25% and the industry standard is 45%, there typically isn't a way to get 25% gross margins up to 45%. Sure. Or if you're burning cash because you want to grow and your existing customers aren't coming back because they don't like your product very much. That again is not a great reason to burn cash. That's just, that's filling up a leaky bucket. Right, right. And so in, in either of those situations, I, I think unfortunately that the norm of you need to burn cash when you're in the early days has clouded the question of why is this company burning cash? What is the use of proceeds of this venture capital round? 
And many times you find that there are companies that shouldn't be raising money at all. Mm-hmm. And there are companies that should be raising less than they are. And our typical advocacy is whatever amount a company thinks that they need to raise, they might be able to get away with less and they may be better off if they actually raise less. Oh, that's interesting. Cause I would tell you Kiva across the board. I feel like I hear, I hear the other way, which always makes me cringe where it's like, if they think they need X, they should actually ask for X plus 50%. And in my finance brain, I'm always like, that just, you're just get, it seems like you're diluting yourself. You're giving away, like, it just doesn't seem like, I like the way you just thought about that. Cause that pushes you to be scrappier to actually think through how you, you know, that really pushes the business to like cut corners and not cut corners in a bad way, but cut corners when it comes to cost. I mean, most people don't really want to be scrappy, Shane. Like it's not, it's, you know, you look back on it with nostalgia of those days mm-hmm. that you're, you know, trying to rub two nickels together in the garage. But in the early days, you know, c- capital is a solution to make your life easier. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes you're not realizing that, you know, hey, if, if you raise the money, you're going to spend it. And often you're going to spend it on things you don't totally need. Sure. So when you guys evaluate a brand and they're walking you through what they're going to use the funds for, Another question I've always had, because I've, I've heard some of these pitches just doing my own some very small angel investing I've done. Sometimes I see a plan and, and honestly, I push back and I'm like, is that really what you're using the funds for? Like, do you feel like there's, a, is there a process today with venture capital where brand, you know, brand A over here says, you know, with a million dollars, they're going to deploy this against A, B, C, and D. And then is there ever a process where it's, where you go back and you actually review is that where it went to A, B, C, and D? Because a lot of times I just wonder if they're just raising capital. Not to say they want to be deceiving, but I just always wonder like if there's a due diligence process on the back end to see like, is that actually where the, the funds are deployed? Or is that kind of like null and void once you are you move on and make an investment? Yeah, I mean, these are startups. And so there's we, we don't go through the projection model with the same maniacal focus that you know I used to when I was working at a buyout firm. Sure. But oftentimes the models make a few really bad optimistic assumptions. Like they make an assumption that they're going to get a certain number of facings in a certain retailer, and it's going to turn at a certain speed Mm -hmm. and they build their headcount plan off of that. And if that happens later or the turns don't happen as fast, they've still made all the hires and the hires are fixed and those those fixed hires don't flex down. Like yeah, you know, people don't right. take a pay cut in salary because you're, you're selling, <laughs> you know, half your expectations at, at Whole Foods. Right. Right. And so, uh, people take on too much fixed cost related to an over-optimistic view of the future. And that optimistic view of the future tends to be, I think something is going to happen sooner than it will, or, I think that my product will turn faster than it actually will, or I think my gross margin will increase more than it feasibly will. That mm. one's that one's really common. So I guess okay. I get bigger, my gross margin will get higher just because I have more leverage with my co-packer or yeah. um, you know, I'm I'm bigger and economies of scale will happen somehow. I'll, I'll get better deals on ingredients. And I, it's not to say that those factors don't exist, but usually there's like a counter fa- counteracting factor on the other side, which is that, you know, your, your next, your next new consumer wants to pay a little bit less than your previous one did. 
Got it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that makes tons of sense. I know one piece that I always, the brands that I work with and talk with, I always tell them was a surprise. And again, I, I probably bring in RX bar experience too much here, but as we we went into retail, my, at one point I owned the revenue management desk. So anything trade gross to net went across my desk and it was just always a surprise. Like I felt like every month during the like 2018, 2019 years of like our massive growth, we would project one thing. And then what actually came in was such a it was so much different sometimes. And, and a lot of that was just, I, I you know, the combination of Unify, Kehi, and some of the retailers we worked with, just projections and actuals being completely different. Right. And at our X-Bar scale, we already were acquired. So like there was a little bit of a different situation, but I can only imagine, you probably see this a lot. I feel like with a lot of the brands you work with, if you don't have a crazy good grasp of what retail truly costs all in, as you push to scale, I could see how that could just be eat away at your bottom line, um, it could just go on and on and on and like get worse and worse and worse. And I know that was something we tried really hard to fix and it, it's a tough problem, you know, even at the scale our X-Bar was at. Yeah. And many of the, many of the founders that we have backed did not previously work at a larger CPG company. Many of them mm-hmm. didn't work at a CPG company at all. And we invested in them because they have a really compelling vision and powerful leadership and communication skills, not, yeah. not because, you know, they've, they've torn apart a P and L, you know, within the best practices of P and G or Kellogg's. Okay. And so, yeah. uh, we fully expect going in that they can't necessarily see around the corners of what's going to happen when they launch a new retailer, what's UNFI or KE going to do. Got it. Uh, okay. Part of the reason that they want to partner with us is that we've dealt with that kind of thing over and over and over again. And so we, we have we have good answers or we know people who have good answers and can help them, you know, put some, put some clarity to the near-term chaos. Um, and so that's, that's never a knock on these companies. It's, it's just like be humble and expect that this is an industry with a whole bunch of ways of doing things that are really hard to change. And, uh, you know, it, it will, it will bring about unpredictability and the more curious you are and the more experts you surround yourself with the better off you're going to ultimately do. No, I love that. That's that's great. And do you feel like you know the, the companies in your portfolio? And and I'll link your your website to the show notes. I think for everyone listening, you'll you'll be really interested into the companies that Selva's invested in. You have a really, in my opinion, not to blow smoke, Kiva. You have a really cool, dynamic, diversified group of companies that you guys are working with. Um, Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I, I truly mean that. Would Would you say for most of those, is their end goal to be acquired? Like like what I lived through at RX, or is a lot of those or any of them? Is there end goal? And for you guys along for the ride, is it to build, you know, a big, big brand that's going to live on for decades and decades? Like I know Jake from Midday Squares decently well, and, and I feel like they, they kind of preach that, like they want to be the next Hershey's, right? They want to get to the top of the mountain and, and it doesn't seem like they necessarily want to sell. Like maybe an IPO they've joked about, but um, just be curious, like, is that something that you guys think about when you get involved is like what the end goal is, whether it's an acquisition or, or building just a major behemoth of a brand? Yeah, I, I won't speak for every single one of our companies, but uh, for the most part, what our founders generally care about is affecting as many consumers as possible and creating a great outcome for the people along the way who have supported them. And so uh, for affecting consumers, 
selling to a large CPG company actually is a really great way of reaching more consumers. Sure. You sure. get manufacturing scale, you get sales and marketing scale, you get resources that ultimately reach way, way more consumers. You know, for RX bar being international was not really a possibility until they sold to Kellogg's. And so, yeah. you know, reaching people in Canada and all over the world, all of a sudden became possible. And, you know, that was, that was a really excellent byproduct that probably would have been years and years away if ever, yeah, uh, if right. the business had stayed independent. Um, you know, for the supporters of, of the brands, I mean, whether it is the investors that gave you capital along the way, the employees who took a chance at joining you and, and making a lower salary and working longer hours than they would have if they'd worked at a big CPG company or somewhere else. And even just your husband, wife, parents, kids that, you know, made so many sacrifices to allow you to take this chance. Yeah. I mean, you want to secure financial security and benefit for all of these groups. And so oftentimes uh, the, the pursuit of an exit is not, it's not viewed as the end of the journey. Many times the, the, the founding team and core members of the team stay on beyond that point. It's simply, you know, an, an economic event to change in the cap table. Uh, yeah. And by the way, big CPG companies are getting a lot better at making sure that it doesn't change the business so much because they want to preserve the magic that got that company to that point. Yeah. And so uh, most of the time, I would say it's not a specific number of years in the future, but the, the founders, when they have conversations with us, say like, at some point we want to have this event and we really want to make sure that we're prepared for that. We want to make sure that we're armed with all the information and all the negotiating leverage that we can. And that's another place that we having bought and sold businesses in the past individually have, have uh, the means and support to be able to help them make the right decisions there. That, that's awesome. And, and do you feel Kiva, how, how often nowadays are you interacting with these founders? within your portfolio when it comes to those types of conversations? Are those, are those happening pretty often? Or are they more of like a quarterly, yearly thing where you guys are kind of making pivots and, and ideating on, on what the next year looks like? How often I talk to them in general or about this topic? Just about like more of so on like the, the exit event or, or some sort of major event. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is the kind of thing that that is both core to the vision of achieving what the founders want to achieve and also just, you know, personally important to them that they want to talk to their confidants about. And so uh, we, we set ourselves up and market ourselves to ambitious founders as thought partners who have been on the other side of the table mm. at later stages. Okay. So I've worked at a, I've, I've done you know, slightly later stage venture investments, I've done growth equity investments, I've done buyout investments, I've, you know, sold and advised on buy side uh, acquisitions and investment banking. And so I can kind of tell them what the goalposts are at each step of the journey. And oftentimes, you know, what they're asking me is like, Hey, where do we need to be to raise the next round successfully? Where do we need to raise? Where do we need to be to, to raise a growth equity round successfully? Where what do we need to do to plan for an exit down the road? And you know those those questions are coming inbound to me all the time, and I'm often 
going back to him, like them, uh, what do you want? When do you want it to happen? Uh, you know, what's a good outcome? What's a great outcome? What's nice to have? What's need to have? And how do we make sure we can work backwards from those things so that we're prepared when that day comes? Um, it's never, it's never forcing an agenda on them. It's, it's much more about generating alignment and making sure that they know there's, you know, trust in, and direction that we can all be rowing in. I will say, I think one of the cool things of now talking to you twice on the podcast, Kiva, is like I get this sense that the companies you work with, and basically what you just said, hits on this. You're, you're definitely there to foster like this relationship of just like we're a part of the team, we're here to help, like we want to see you be successful. Whereas maybe it was just my external understanding of of venture capital, but I've always thought of it to be like, all right, we're coming in to deploy major funds. Now here is KPI A, B, and C that you have to hit or there's you kind of like a big brother coming in, which maybe that is what a lot of venture capital is. I've never, you know, raised any for a company I've started, but I really think it's really cool how you guys are building what feels like a totally different relationship with these founders and these teams. I appreciate you saying that. I do think there are people in our industry who get this wrong, but I do think our industry gets a far worse rap than it deserves in that uh, many people doing it quietly and focused or doing it the right mm -hmm. way okay. and having, you know, trust filled, really productive relationships with, with companies. Um, the ones who get it wrong tend to have the alignment conversations after they make the investment. And the ones ah. who get it right tend to have the alignment conversations before they make the investment. So... I mean, it's, it's no secret to our companies that we need to get our money out yeah. within some period of time. Like they can run the business forever. They, they can not sell their stake when the company's acquired, but we need to get our money out at some point. Right. And so that's, a, that's an upfront conversation that is well understood by both sides, such that we're not blindsiding them years in the future when we say, Hey, Hey, we need to, we need to think about when this might happen. And if you want to go, if you want to go this route to not sell to a strategic, let's think about how to create a monetization event for your investors, your employees, et cetera. That's really, really I think interesting. Over the past few years, the speed that investments were made at across our industry meant that oftentimes investors would skip that step of building alignment and building trust prior to investment. Mm -hmm. And that opened up a whole can of worms that opened up situations where the expectations of what is success really differed between investors and companies. And that creates a lot of problems that creates a lot of heartache and pain. Um, it takes discipline to wait and have some of these trust building conversations before you invest. But in the long run, it does mean that there's just a much more positive relationship over time. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, you, you know, for lack of better words, it's kind of a marriage to a degree, right? Like you're deploying funds and you're hoping that the out, like if your guys' outcomes are different and you're not aligned before you make that investment, I mean, pretty inevitable that there's probably going to be some, some heartache and some issues there long term. Yeah, I, I never think there's a problem if both sides think something isn't going well. There tends to be a lot of alignment. When both sides think something's going great, there's obviously alignment. Yeah. The problem exists where one side thinks something's going well and the other side thinks it's not. Sure. That, yeah. That's where that's where you have issue. I mean, a company's growing really fast, but 
uh, one side wants to grow faster, one side wants liquidity sooner. That that's where you have tension. So especially right. where you have tension yeah. because the side that thinks things are going well is so that kind of starts saying like, get off my back. And so you don't want surprises. You want to understand what the other side wants. You want to understand where the goalposts are. Problems exist in so many relationships and so many industries when the goalposts change or when the goalposts end up being someplace different than you thought they were. And that's Lack why right? these early conversations, trust building, hard conversations, learn the truth early, work through those dynamics early, really pays off. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Kiva. And I think there's, yeah, a lot of, a lot of, for people listening, I think that's a really big takeaway, just no matter if you're trying to raise capital or just working with other partners in general from your business, right? I think that probably goes to show a lot of, a lot of different relationships can benefit from what you just said. So we've hit on, you know, margins, all the different things that you feel like differentiate a potential investment into a company. For, you know, any brands listening today, which this is obviously one of the reasons I wanted to get you back on. For, for you guys, I guess this is a, a two-part question. Part one being, are there certain industries right now, certain categories that Selva Ventures is just more interested in than others? And again, I know there's like very specifics you're looking for, but just in general, I'd be really curious because the, the folks that listen to this, there definitely could be some brands that maybe organically you guys get to make the connection through this podcast. So I would love to know if there's just anything that's kind of percolating in your brain these days that you're like, that's a category. I just, you know, I want to learn more about, want to talk to more people about, want to like potentially deploy fund number two, maybe to some brand in this space. Yeah. Uh, I mean, inst I'll, I'll give two answers to that. I mean, first institutionally, we decided a couple of years ago that beauty and personal care was an incredibly powerful part of the consumer economy. Mm -hmm. And it was a space that we were underexposed. And it was a space where I personally did not believe that I could be, you know, one of the best in the industry at forming relationships and deploying capital into. And so we went out and found an incredibly talented uh, person to join our team in Madeline Kaplan, who we felt like could lead that effort. Madeline comes with inherent passion in the industry. Uh, a deep knowledge base of what companies are interesting and what makes it an emerging beauty brand interesting. Uh, and with that, you know, we have already made a couple of really exciting beauty investments in the past year that she works very closely with. And so generally, uh, we're spending more time in that space and that will be a bigger part of fund two than it was in fund one. Um, more broadly, I would say that there's a there's a theme we have been excited about from the beginning and picked our spots on on how to invest in this. But we're really excited about the concept of stigma hmm. and how brands can counteract it and have a direct relationship with the consumer in creating content and explanation and clarity on consumer issues that consumers are really just not used to hearing about from big CPG. We did that with a sexual wellness brand in Cake, which has so far been one of our most successful investments. Um, we're looking to do that in other places across um, women's health, across mental health, uh, places where we feel like the consumer has been really let down by executive teams and innovation groups across big, big CPG that have been really kind of homogenous and non-risk-taking. Okay. And so yeah. we feel like there are so many consumer issues that stem from deep consumer insight that a lot of entrepreneurs are much better positioned to hold 
than a large CPG company. And so uh, this, this extremely broad, but these kinds of conversations about what might happen to your body at different periods of time that you might not be really excited to talk about with friends or a pharmacist or, you know, a checkout clerk. These are things that brands are able to leverage social media, e-commerce, and ultimately build retail relationships around uh, that can solve consumer problems and make consumers feel more seen. I, uh, I actually, it was funny. I was reviewing your portfolio the other day. I, I had never heard of cake and I was very impressed. Like just even just going through their D2C site, I'm like, oh, this super smart. I mean, just in general, I could totally see how this is a, uh, to your point, if anyone goes and looks at that, you'll get it right away. Like very creative way to handle a category where, yeah, I'm sure the, the most consumers are a little, a little, uh, whether it's, you know, don't want to talk about it or don't want to go seek help. They're doing a great job of that. That's really, really totally. cool. So you think that can actually happen across lots of categories? You think that's just like tip of the iceberg, essentially? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, s sexual wellness is but one area of stigmatization in our lives. There are, yeah. there are tons of areas across women's health, across men's health. Uh, what happens as you get older? There are some extremely powerful demographic shifts happening in the United States. Uh, a, a very large predispositions around what brands to consume. They have a digital fluency that their predecessors did not have. Uh, there's a lot of dislocation that is going to happen around health and wellness. And, uh, you know, our, our, our eye is always going to be on the ball of the 18 to 29 year old influencers, but, mm. uh, by all means, there are a lot of older consumers that we're hyper-focused on as well. And we think a lot of opportunity is coming from that group. Love that. Love that. And, and for brands who are seeking capital today, what, is there anything we, we obviously hit on a few different things in this podcast, but is there anything specifically like if, if a brand is listening and they're like, oh, Selva Ventures seems like an awesome partner for us, but we know our gross margins aren't good enough or they're maybe not high enough. Do you have anything for those founders who are listening today, whether it's, you know, either maybe something for them to go improve on or, or just any advice, I guess, for founders who are listening or feel like maybe like you guys are the perfect partner, but maybe they don't have the perfect P&L or perfect situation just yet. Yeah, venture capital is supposed to be fuel on a fire or at a minimum fuel on a spark. And you don't pour fuel on something that has not really gotten going yet. And so historically, the question of whether you have a fire or whether you have a spark is whether you're growing. And mm. that certainly still matters. But whether you're growing now with effective gross margins and effective repeat purchase is really the question. And so come at this question with, with the realization that uh, you should fix your gross margin before you try to scale your business. You should fix your repeat purchase before you try to scale your business. Scaling your business is not going to fix your gross margin or your repeat purchase. Love it. That that's about as good of a takeaway as you can get. I think that's amazing. That's great. Kiva, the, the, one of the last questions I, I asked you this last time, but would love to ask you it again. Cause I'm sure things have evolved and changed. I don't, I don't remember. remember. You um, might not remember this question. Surprise me again. Yeah, no. I, so the question is, um, you're obviously running a venture capital firm. Like you said, you're, you're about to make a big move. There's lots of big things going on in your life. What do you use from a tools perspective to plan out your goals and inevitably just get shit done on a daily basis? Are you a, a planner guy, a, a, uh, an app guy? Like what do you use just to organize everything and, and know what to prioritize today? Yeah. Uh, basic to-do lists 
I think have been more powerful than any kind of highly technical uh, organization tool for me. Mm -hmm. There's the dopamine hit of, of crossing something off on your list or checking a box that I've always found useful. I have only very recently moved that paper analog to-do list digitally into Notion because mm, okay. I've begun working with uh, a virtual assistant from a oh, company okay. called Athena. That so far has been a game changer for me in trying to create more leverage and scale in my life so that I can show up to the stakeholders who need me, whether it be employees, founders, or family in a better way. And, you know, th this person has been, you know, pushing a whole bunch of digital tools like Notion and Loom that unlock that for me. Okay. Um, yeah. Finally, generally on, on my like wellness and productivity, I'm starting to get a better tracking system down of how much do I sleep every night? How much do I spend uh, looking at my phone? How do I get that first number up and that second number down? Um, and generally find ways to just be, you know, more focused, more present and, you know, have a better attitude and better energy in each of those interactions. Oh, I love that. Just, just kind of combining the wellness piece right in there. How are you uh, liking the notion switch? That's one that I've like held off on because it feels like a, a rabbit hole for me, but I know so many people that love it. It's great. I mean, honestly, huge, huge credit to my team who proposed it about six months ago to kind of shift some of our like CRM and mm. uh, like organizational tools into it. Uh, I found it extremely powerful. I find it really easy to use. I find it fun to engage with. There's nice little features and touches that, that make it really useful. And it becomes the kind of centralized source of truth across our organization. That means you can rely on it and it becomes a, a real staple in your life. And so um, I don't think I really understood at the time why it was any different from like OneNote or Google Docs. And yeah. uh, I've been proven wrong. Like they, they have, they have uh, really sort of changed the, the organization and performance of the firm by using it. So uh, I'm, oh, I'm pretty awesome. grateful for it. Okay. Well, I'll definitely give it a second world. And you're like the third person this week that's told me the same exact story. So I'll, I'll get, I'll take a look at it. Um, what, what are you using for everyone listening to track sleep? Just curious. I have an aura ring Okay. and, uh, you know, I, I used to just kind of slot check my, my time and now I'm, I'm starting to engage with more of the features like my HRV and body temperature and things like that, that, um, I can try to, you know, map against how I was feeling or how I was performing or, or what other parts of my, my kind of day and health were, were going during those times. Um, HRV is an interesting one that I, I heard biohackers talk about it all the time, but I didn't really, you know, gain the meaning from it. And then yeah. uh, a little while back I got COVID and I saw what, what happened to my HRV before I actually had the, the diagnosis and, you know, Crazy, I had right? a tough bout of it for a couple of days and I felt like, well, wow, this, this really moved. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool to see. And it's especially cool to see how people who have really committed to long-term habit forming on, uh, various kind of wellness regimens have, have pushed their HRV far beyond what mine has ever touched. So there's something to it. Yeah, for sure. I've worn the whoop for a long time and I've like gone in and out, but uh, I recently took a, like a 50 day break from alcohol and I realized it was the first time I'd done that since before college. Like, to be honest, I had never yeah. gone like a week without like a beer, a glass of wine, nothing. 
Um, remarkable. Like, I, Pretty wild, I, right? Yeah, like to the point that my HRV is so much higher. And then you you get to a point where you, you start to realize how some, like for me specifically, alcohol is just such a huge hit to my HRV. But now I'm starting to like slowly take it out of my, I don't really drink very much anymore, um, which has been a funny takeaway this year of just really trying to stay focused on that. So I think that's a cool takeaway from today too, just outside of investments. Uh, health is starting to really, I feel like I hear this all the time now, just in, the intermingling of health, wellness, and entrepreneurship has become such a top, hot topic and focus of so many entrepreneurs. It's cool to hear you uh, you hit on that. I think as your days, uh, as you get older, your each individual day becomes more important and you're you're more focused on feeling good and making the most of that day. You also yeah. notice how much your decisions compound, like whether you used to be that whether you drank or not really only only mattered in how you felt the next day. But to your right. point, you're seeing compounding effects of going, you know, 30, 40, 50 days and, and seeing some of the, the way you show up every day and the way you feel every day get better and better and better. I mean, that's an insight that changes the calculus on whether you should drink tonight. Yeah, exactly. I just had uh, my first born. My wife gave birth in January. So part of it Congrats. was just like. Thanks, man. Part of it was just trying to be as present as I possibly can for him. And yeah. it's been so eye opening. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how new parents are drinking in the evening and then getting up during the night and acting like they're they're able to like I can't I now I'm like, I don't even want to touch it because I just I like being able to wake you, up at you, four you and not feel like a zombie. You really don't want to be sluggish the next day when you're no. on dad duty. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, it sucks, you know, so for sure, man. So that's that's a good one. That's a really good one for a takeaway today. Um, I know we're out of time and I know you got you, have, you got a busy, busy schedule. So Kiva. Thank you so much for the time, man. It was great to catch up with you. Um, hopefully one of these times we're all at Expo or one of these events, I'll get to meet you in person. So um, appreciate the time. And I'll add add links to Selva Ventures and anything for anyone that you want to share just as a last goodbye on as far as like following you or that you don't have to share an email by any means. But if you want a way yeah, to really get a hold of you. You can follow me on, on Twitter or LinkedIn. I try and kind of share what I'm what I'm seeing on the industry and and what's up in both of those places. And so, um, you know, with... with Love you to follow along and, and comment and let me know when you disagree. I like that more than anything. Love that. Some humility. And uh, I think that's what makes us all better. So I love that, Kiva. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. And uh, thanks for the time. Wonderful. Thanks as always, Shane. All right. Thank you.